0: Hello, everyone.
1: Welcome. The uh, the,
0: the shining Anglo knight and the dark <laughs> hidden pole.
1: Exactly, we Slavs thrive in the darkness. Um, it's yet another thing that we have in common with the orcs.
0: So, Kuba, um, when when are you invading Ukraine?
1: The um, I mean if you listen to russia it's already taken place yeah. um did you, know, you see that
0: the only country which offered i think i've said this before the only country which directly offered to military intervene to help ukraine uh is belarus but it was only against an entirely hypothetical polish invasion
1: the um it's funny because if there were a polish invasion of ukraine um kind of doubt that belarus would uh would really make that much of a difference
0: yeah I, I i mean at the moment it's funny how basically everyone before it was kind of expected that ukraine would kind of you know win the war diplomatically or like through the internet or whatever and it turns out they're actually shit at all that stuff um as has been revealed in the pa- in the past day by the fact that like Western diplomats are getting increasingly frustrated and furious at them for insisting that it was a Russian missile, which hit Poland, but they're great at conventional war, which everyone thought they'd suck at.
1: So, well, the, um, I think that there's still a, um, old world mentality when it comes to, um, when it comes to like wartime communication, where the, it really is another front in a military conflict. And even if it's obvious that the particular line is false, not even your allies are backing you up, you still have to commit to it you have to go go all in because any admission that um, the, and maybe we should start by just saying what happened and, then well, we
0: can I say to go back a bit more than that because when you initially suggested we had another one of these updates i was saying like well not much has fucking happens in the last one the main change had been uh that kind of there was a large scale start the start of russian attacks on ukrainian electrical infrastructure um something we talked about might have might have been saying which was going to start to happen but hadn't by the time of our last update and then the other thing which happened was which happened during kind of the time we were planning to have this update, was that the Russians' left curtain, uh, which is pretty incredible. And then since then, um, a couple of days ago, um, a Ukrainian air defense mass missile, as it turns out, uh, while trying to shoot down um, Russian missiles targeting electrical infrastructure in the far west and reaches the Ukraine, uh, was taken down by... Was, was attempting to take down a Russian missile, but the Ukrainian defense missile struck. Uh, I think it was like a Polish farmhouse um, and, and killed two poles.
1: Yes, the um, in the border village of um, uh, um the uh, what has now been identified as a Russian-built. S-300 air defense missile um, fired by Ukraine against a sizable volley of uh, Russian missiles targeting the area around Lviv Uh, missed, went off course, was diverted and uh, flew into a uh, Polish farmhouse Um, maybe it was just terrible luck the area is sparsely populated if you were throwing a dart um randomly then you would more than likely just hit a field um or it may have been attracted to the uh, farm equipment because a tractor and some other um gear uh, was directly struck and it killed um two local polish um residents the fact that this came at the same time as the the Russian volley uh, against Lviv it wasn't just targeting uh, electric infrastructure although that was certainly one of the one of the goals but there's also an international peacekeeping center uh, around Lviv which at this point means military training specifically,
0: where they, um, they kept the red brigade at the start of the war.
1: It's possible, uh, I'm not sure. Um, the but NATO trainers go in and out of there, that's where they work with uh, their Ukrainian counterparts. And that was struck, 35 people, I believe, were killed. Um, and within in trying to defend against that barrage, that's when the Ukrainians fired their uh, S-300s and one of them uh, struck inside of Poland um, because it landed on Polish soil and there were Polish fatalities. the rec- uh, And the wreckage indicated Russian make. Um, initially, there were rumors that this was a Russian attack um, a Russian missile would struck Ukrainian Poland.
0: Ukrainian officials said that if you've said anything else, then you're engaged in you're supporting Russian conspiracy theories.
1: To be fair, the Russians said that um, if you said that, that was a naked provocation, um, and it's the responsibility...
0: So instead of suggesting... The Russians, of course, were ridiculous by suggesting that instead of it just being an accident, it was some kind of deliberate false flag.
1: Yes, the... Um, And uh, the reality is that, as we can see, you can never trust either side. Um, Both the Ukrainians and the Russians and their official announcements will play into uh, whichever narrative is most suitable for them. And...
0: my Russian friend was shocked that the West told the truth about this one.
1: The... Indeed, um, that that's possibly the most remarkable thing. And if this were a, a conflict with um, any other power, except perhaps China, then that fear of escalation, um, which was the likely motivation for coming clean, um, might have might have been uh, waved off uh, after I mean, all
0: with the meeting they just had in turkey i was expecting the u.s to say as with kind of the, the 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 pipeline explosion which was kind of just buried because it was politically inconvenient i thought that america would say you know if the russians had done it they would claim that aliens have done it you know uh, because they're trying to kind of they're really trying to push towards peace and don't want escalation but as it turned out, the Russians didn't do it, so it became very easy for America to tell the truth.
1: Yes, the um, and what would the counterfactual is interesting if this had been a Russian uh, missile, a missile fired uh, by Russia, would you try to cover it up in order to um prevent? the invocation of article five uh, right like that this is an open question if you do have a an inadvertent strike into uh, a neighboring country and poland is the main artery for weapons and materiel flowing into ukraine from the western alliance um it frustrates Russia to no end, that um, they can't really do anything to interdict the supplies until they get to the border. Um, and the um, that what happens if there is an accidental or deliberate strike like this into uh, the territory of, uh, of a NATO ally? which is entirely possible, given that so much border infrastructure exists related to um, the war in, uh, in Ukraine. And what we've seen is the broadening of uh, Russian bombing campaigns from the center and uh, areas of immediate tactical concern to um, Western regions, uh, bringing down the power grid, among other things, and um, the something like this could very easily happen um, with Russian missiles. Mm. If, if that's the case, do you invoke article five? is does it become a an automatic tripwire?
0: Uh, apparently Poland did invoke article four, which for me is a bit like invoking the third amendment or something where it's like, Oh, I didn't know the w- other ones actually did.
1: <laughs> yeah. The, um, that's an excellent point, right? Like article five is sort of the only one that, um, anybody cares about. Article four is just, um, I have the conch, right? I would like to speak. Um, <laughs> you must all listen to me. Article four. You must all listen to me. Article four. Um, which, frankly, it's not inappropriate in this circumstance. And Poland and the Baltic states had invoked it earlier when Russia invaded Ukraine proper. Article 4 doesn't require NATO escalation, um, but it is, you know, it's hitting the panic button to to get everyone um, to force a, uh, a conference where uh, NATO member states uh, have to deal with what you're bringing on the agenda. Um, so, in in a lot of cases, um, American troops specifically have been placed in allied countries, uh, not just uh, in Europe, but also uh, in places like uh, South Korea uh, and the Gulf states, to act as a kind of human tripwire. Um. Mm-hmm. I was
0: wondering if you if you knew like the U.S. has recently said it would go to nu- like go nuclear over Japan and South Korea. Is this new new U.S. policy or is this consistent U.S. policy?
1: Um, since the Korean War, the United States has extended its nuclear umbrella over South Korea and Japan. Um, that's consistent with its position since the Cold War, and. It's at that point it was directed against the Soviet Union, since uh, Japan was an essential component of uh, American power projection in the Pacific. Now it's clearly uh, aimed at China um, in the you Korean case.
0: See that, um, the U.S. threatened an unprecedented reaction if North Korea did a seventh nuclear test, which is a bit like why, like why number seven, like.
1: The numerology, I don't know. I remember that um, under Ronald Reagan, the last president of comparable age, and um, what's the euphemism for senility? Uh, the, um, The White House fell under the influence of Nancy Reagan since she was closest to her husband and she could manage him. And therefore, the influence of Nancy Reagan's astrologer who um, recommended, who picked auspicious dates for summits and other key meetings.
0: He's a fucking Roman emperor.
1: <laughs> well, why not, right? The Look yeah. at the architecture, it makes sense. Um, the auguries are good. It is time to escalate in Ukraine.
0: Um, so Kuba, when you initially wanted to talk about this update before the missile strike and even before the attack on Kherson, what was kind of the main thing that you wanted to discuss?
1: The I wanted to um, talk about. Th- there's a great deal of um, there's uh, a great deal of activity domestically within Russia, within Ukraine. Um, and in terms of domestic mobilization, um, the need to keep the population on side, the need to uh, present coherent narratives um, that can resonate diplomatically um, another another interesting uh, point is that in terms of their international image and international, diplomatic footing Russia and Ukraine are dealing with two very different audiences um, the Ukrainian um, diplomatic and information effort has to reach Western audiences keep them involved keep them engaged um, work on um, work on the allies to maintain that flow of money and weapons that is essential to Ukraine's ability to fight. The Russian counter-narrative has given up entirely on um, convincing the West to, you know, borrow uh, a conventional phrase, it's not for you, right? The Russian narrative is an appeal to um, countries in the global south uh, as well as non-aligned and, and what could be described as well, what America likes to call rogue states, Iran, um, China, um, that um, in order to present this as part of a global effort to rein in the United States, and what's interesting, too, is in both cases, that clashes with the domestic narratives of mobilization, which we've touched on before a little. Come, There's a lot of um, Slavic, quasi-Tolkienite national romantic mysticism mm. behind the the two sides in the war, they um, both have an almost metaphysical appeal to their uh, compatriots. This has to do with the soul of Russia. This has to do with um, identity, purpose, meaning, um, who we are as people, our place in the world. And fundamentally, you get to good and evil pretty quickly. And the one area that would um, that I still wonder about is uh, the extent to which uh, Russia has been successful at uh, popular mobilization. I don't necessarily mean that um, is there domestic dissent? Is mm-hmm. there a, a peace movement like, um, the U.S. had against the Vietnam War but uh, generally speaking Putin is still very popular um, his authority hasn't really been challenged or questioned um, he but that compliance that um, kind of subordination of the Russian people, does that translate into being able to mobilize for conflict? Or is this just an extension of the default peacetime, uh, pragmatic obedience that um, is an essential survival skill um, if you live in an authoritarian state, especially one like Russia?
0: Yeah, I think it's it's definitely the thing of, of kind of Putin has found what the consequences of kind of the Bonapartist politics that he's been engaged with are, which is yeah, it's all good when you're not really doing anything, when your country doesn't have to really be activated for any purpose, but can simply kind of go on, roll on, is kind of like a semi-colonial semi-colonized semi-great power or whatever um, doing minor kind of You know, doing what America does, but at about one tenth of the power or less, you know. But when you actually need to significantly engage your country in a war, yeah, the kind of absolute limits of of the Russian bourgeois politics become apparent. Because I don't think they've really... um, Russia hasn't been activated at all, really. Did you see um, the only public protest about against the surrender of Kherson?
1: Do you mean the uh, Nazbol who um, gave a Z-Kyle on a picnic table?
0: Oh, she also slit her wrists, but yeah, I mean,
1: uh... <laughs> The, um, I, I saw, it, it, is that what you were referring to? Um, yeah. The, there was also what seemed like a very well, um, what's euphemism the euphemism for staged um, march in, um, St. Petersburg, um, calling for, um, reprisals against the West after the loss of Pierzon. Um, the, but, uh, tell me more about the protest that, uh, you're referring to.
0: No, no, I was just, I was just mentioning it as kind of like an aside and to kind of, to reveal through the kind of lack of anything else what the reaction is because Kirsten is kind of like it's really big. Like I think psychologically, it's the biggest defeat of the war from Russia, and it didn't come. Um, like you know, it, it can be very stabbed in the back, myth, right? Because Russia didn't lose there, never lost there in any conventional way. Uh, we're never forced back by the Ukrainians by kind of direct force of arms, but seemingly because of basic de- degradation and especially because of supply problems which directly caused by these Himars, which turned out to actually be a real wonderwaffen instead of kind of all the previous fake ones. Um, So losing Kherson is Russia's biggest defeat of the war. It's a major psychological blow. It was the only functional city they'd captured in Ukraine um, because, obviously, Donetsk and Luhansk had previously been blown up by uh, Ukrainian artillery, and then they have blown up Mariupol, uh, Several next and other places with their own artillery um, so Kherson was really important it was kind of it would be kind of a, a test bed for kind of like a Russian Ukraine uh, where they could test out kind of trying to give people a better living standard than in, in the rest of Ukraine and it would be much easier there because it, again it hadn't been blown to bits um, and now they just kind of left um, and I think the fact that Russia's biggest defeat of the war has not really been marked that much in kind of Russian popular stuff, like popular media, like kind of they talk about it, but it shows, yeah, and obviously that's because of the Kremlin's grip on the media, but it also shows at the same time the limits of that strategy, because people aren't furious about cursing, but if they had been activated in a nationalist way, they would be furious about if If the war was deeply popular in a way of not just passive acceptance, but wanting active or indirectly to participate, uh, people would be furious about that person, and they probably are upset and confused. And, but there's not like a national gripping fury.
1: Th- the I think that your comparison with the United States is a very illustrative one, um, because American politics, apart from the uh, biannual ritual of um, of presidential and midterm elections is a popular demobilization. You want people to vote and then you want people to go home and forget about it. Um, there's a bit of a conflict of interest between um, the political media, which Fox, but not just Fox, right? Everyone likes to bring up Fox, but the reality is that um, the Washington Post, all of the respectable liberal outlets had uh, banner year. Um, They had good times under Trump, and now it's it's much harder to get people uh, to pay attention. But apart from that advertiser, profit-driven, entrepreneurial, commercial impulse to keep people watching their their political parties, for instance, um, demobilize very quickly after elections. Um, That was one of the great criticisms of Obama that he had managed to galvanize a political movement, which included a lot of young people, a lot of first-time voters. Um, He was tremendously personally popular and he could have, like Trump, um, used that popularity to uh, apply pressure um, for uh, his political initiatives. He could have summoned his troll army to go after uh, opposition to Obamacare, for instance. But instead, he immediately demobilizes people. Similarly, uh, George W. Bush, when asked, after September 11, what people could do to contribute to the war, I've already told them to go shopping. So I think that there's an awareness on the part of uh, modern leaders that uh, there's a risk and a danger in mobilizing the population, that any force substantial enough to make a difference on your behalf can also turn against you and uh, create more headaches, create more problems. It also creates a new um, power center that maybe you can hand off to one of your cronies, You know, put Medvedev in charge of um, the popular mobilization, but it can also produce its own leaders that might not be beholden to you. And it might elevate figures that um, have ambitions of their own.
0: Did you hear about the death of the deputy governor of Kherson?
1: No. What happened?
0: Well, it was reported about a week ago, like the day that Russia was announcing that like he was hit by a car. Um, and then finally today, photos of said car have been released. And first off, it looks like it was struck by an IED. And second off, it, there's bullet holes in it. Um, so who knows if, if Ukrainian intelligence killed him or Russian intelligence killed him? But I don't think
1: you would say by a truck. Yeah. The, um, the level of, um, and this is partly a consequence of, um, what we talked about earlier, the information control, um, and the mentality around information control on both the Ukrainian and Russian side where, um, there's, um, what you say is what is useful to you um, tactically, operationally, rarely strategically because if it's hard to have enough of a big picture view to know which lie will be useful six months from now. Um, But there's no um, bias towards accuracy. You can just say what you want. And... A few nerds that are already compromised um, will maybe figure out that you're not telling the truth online. Um, And you may create a, you know, if you've obfuscated or fabricated um, claims about a significant event, then, you know, you might create a conspiracy theory that sticks but even when, and I should say that this isn't even um, an Eastern thing. When I thinking back to the war in uh, Syria, and the <laughs>
0: a, <laughs> that's when the internet war was born. Yes,
1: yes, and um, the I would I would like I'd be curious to hear. Um, your take on the gas attacks uh, that served as the prompt for uh, American airstrikes.
0: I mean, the funny thing about the gas attacks was it's kind of that thing of like, um, you know, there was thermite in the towers, but also the planes hit them. Um, some of the gas attacks were fake and some of them were real and some of them were conducted by the government and some of them were, took, were took, undertook by the rebels. Um, and lots of them happened, but were like massively kind of hyped up, but beyond what actually happened, you know. Um, yeah, I, I can't remember exactly which one. This is you mean know, one in twenty eighteen when Trump gets some useless cruise missile strikes afterwards.
1: Yes, and I know that um, there was a UN agency um, that uh, a, a, a Staff attached to the um, to the Anti-Chemical Weapons Treaty that um, significantly challenged uh, the narrative yeah,
0: that, that, that that was around Duma. Uh, yes, yeah, with probably the 2018 attack. Yeah, that was a whole thing. I think in the end, well, I don't know. It's obviously like with this stuff. There's like a lot of kind of imperial power behind pushing a certain narrative. But I think, as it turns out, the kind of whistleblowers were mostly incorrect. But they were obviously correct in the sense that um, the OPCW was massively rushing into things. Um, and they were basically rubber stamping American actions when they hadn't, like, touched the site, you know, because they obviously couldn't. Um, and we just kind of use, using, like, testimonials and stuff to, to be like, yeah, it was a gas attack. Um, I think in the end it was a gas attack, but that's still... Like, you know, if, if it's like, Saddam could have had weapons of mass destruction, but then the, it could have still been a bullshit story to invade, you know? Yeah. I think everyone was surprised that he didn't have any in the end, you know?
1: Yes, this is true. The, um, I think even the Iraqis may have been surprised. Um,
0: right, because, I mean, I think it was uh, Chris Katron who said this, like, even Saddam wanted everyone to think he had chemical weapons, because without chemical weapons, he's just kind of some idiot who lost to Iran.
1: Precisely the, um, it if you um, if you can't have a mystique of violence and power around you, then what's the point of being a dictator? And also, you might not be one for very long. And speaking of punctured mystiques, and this takes us back to Kirson, right? The, this was the one region where uh, Russian gains seemed durable. Um, and the previous counter-offensive, the previous Ukrainian counter-offensive had failed. Um,
0: and, and the attacks they were doing at the time seemed to also fail. we were taking, were, we're not going very well. And like the Russians were finally releasing like a lot of footage and it looked really quite horrible for the Ukrainians.
1: The, um, and it was, um, and it looks like, as you said, um, Russian forces weren't defeated or destroyed, um, tactically, they weren't forced back under heavy fire. Um, they gave up Kerasan, um, giving up a position that's indefensible is a perfectly legitimate, um, approach to, um, to war fighting. Uh, why would you sacrifice uh, valuable manpower, valuable uh, resources uh, on a doomed effort? But it still looks bad. And yeah, now...
0: In, in the summer, this the withdrawal from Kherson was already requested then by the general, who at the time was in charge of the South Front, um, and is now in charge of the whole Ukraine. I can't remember his name because in Western media they only call him General Armageddon and that has kind of like totally obscured all the other facts about him. I, I also call him Dr. Doom. Um, but the interesting thing there is yeah, he was militarily he was right to request Russia withdrawal then. But politically I completely agreed with uh, Putin's refusal, his initial refusal. Because if you withdraw from Kherson, then what the fuck is the point? What, why don't you just you go home and stop?
1: Precisely. The um, Russia already gave up on the Kiev Northern Front. Um, it's been pushed out of Kharkiv. Um, the south was the only area where it looked like there were some durable um, gains. But with the retreat from Kyrgyzstan, the Dniep does serve as uh, a very defensible line um, that gives you a little bit of territory before the Crimean Peninsula. But what what do you even have, right? Um, it begins to look like uh, Ukrainian victory, right? Like that the Ukrainians are bit by bit, pushing out um, the Russians who, at this point, um, the best they can do is launch volleys of missiles against civilian infrastructure in a fit of pique. Now, that may work, right? The And I think that what we're seeing is a shift in... The Russian approach from a short war decided operationally to a long, grinding strategic economic conflict, which is not great. Um, And the part of that involves converting all of Ukraine. Into the type of uh, broken rubble that they um, that Syria became in the uh, end of the conflict, the water, electricity.
0: I, tell, I was thinking of Gaza.
1: The um, great difference between Gaza and Ukraine is that uh, without Poland to play Egypt's role of uh, partner jailer. Ukrainians can escape and Ukraine can be resupplied and rebuilt.
0: Yeah, and that's that's why if you want to be a minor imperial power, um, hang out with America because otherwise it doesn't work.
1: Yeah, the, um, if you, Russia, and this is, in some ways we're seeing Um, now one conventional reading of this conflict, uh, that's very popular on the left and that I, I believe is partly correct. It's partly sound was that, um, by making, um, aggressive moves into territory that was strategically important for Russia. Um, NATO provoked uh, a defensive reaction and now is paying the price. That um, NATO expansion was unnecessary and um, provocative. And this is the end point. Now, one – a different reading would be that um, fundamentally that requires having a particular view of Russia, right, that Russia is a great power, great powers have their – uh, they value their autonomy. They value their sovereignty. They um, are threatened by the actions of other powers. Um, the United States had demonstrated that it was um, that it was untrustworthy because of its moves in the post-communist space. Not just in terms of um, NATO expansion, but also the recommendations for privatization that. Devastated the Russian economy, right? The, the role of uh, American advisors in pushing uh, economic and political snake oil. So Russia would, of course, react. Um, that does foreclose the possibility of uh, Russian leadership, which it Is more pragmatic in accepting a subordinate role in somebody else's international order. And as you pointed out, if you're going to be a minor imperial power, it helps to have the United States on side. Um, the way that the conflict is playing out, um, well, Ukraine certainly is benefiting from a willingness to, um, to get with that program in terms of um, Western interests in the region. Other countries that have also got with the program um, are now EU members as well as NATO members, um, and they have a, a block of support, which includes the, the would-be global hegemon, the United States, in their diplomatic and strategic efforts uh, on their own. They have to be willing to take no for an answer from um, Brussels, Berlin, and Washington, but there are upsides to um, to that arrangement for local powers. Maybe Russia should have um, given up on um, helping its Serbian younger brothers, or uh, maintaining a Black Sea fleet, and cut a deal that um, would have given it some other types of benefits um, in exchange for freezing China out of its market or uh, coordinating um, on a more consistent footing economically with the West.
0: I mean, it, it's just hard it's hard right because Russia's really
1: big Oh yes. <laughs> like, the, they
0: could never join the European Union right because there would be twice they'd have twice as many MEPs as Germany would have.
1: The um that's at the same time you don't necessarily need to um need to join the EU. Um you could have a Norway Switzerland deal where you're you have access to the common market. Maybe even free movement of people, but you're not part of the governance structures. Um, you could potentially um, have some other arrangements custom built for you um, as a, as a Eurasian partner. And, but I mean, it, there's, all there's of this requires of accepting uh, Western hegemony yeah. and there's very good reasons not to, but, If this is where that uh, defiance got you, what good was that defiance?
0: You know, um, throughout the war, Russia has been selling um, processed aluminium, aluminium, aluminum, to the United States, which the United States then reprocesses into weapons, which it sends to Ukraine. Like... Kind of Russia is like economically a semi-colony with like an enormous army.
1: Yeah, it was just, um, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union was described as upper Volta with rockets. And, and
0: they also gave upper Volta rockets.
1: The um, rockets for everybody. Um, and that's one of the paradoxes of the Soviet and the Russian economy. They are able to Produce raw materials, um, strategic materials, hard infrastructure, machinery, um, on a mass scale at relatively low cost. Um, gear and equipment that's reliable, that works well, is often uh, competitive with uh, Western, um, with Western um, alternatives, but. For some reason, it can't translate that into a um, commercial economy with a self self sustaining growth path um, with indigenous innovation and technological um, development, and this is this marks it considerably um, out from China which has been able to to achieve that. And um, part of that may have to do with the fact that for a time, at least in accordance with the Maoist uh, maxim that you hide your strength, um, China was able to tap into not just the capital, but also the technology of the West. Um, It used developmental models that had succeeded in um other asian countries specifically japan south korea but also even the, the small tigers to um as instruments to legally force um, the transfer of technology uh, but for between the 70s and the 90s um china even into the early 2000s, China was not an assertive foreign policy player. It largely ceded um, the security and political environment of um, East Asia and Southeast Asia to uh, the West and had to um, focus on its domestic affairs um, with a military unable to really project um project its force uh, especially um over uh, overseas. And Russia hadn't gone through that thirty years of quiet tutelage. Um it hadn't been uh a clotting its way up the international supply chain. Uh instead its economic model was more a revamped retrofitted Soviet economy, which still largely pumped oil and other uh, raw materials uh, abroad. So the,
0: um, I mean, the, the, the the Russian kind of nationalist idea is that, you know, it's impossible for, that, Ru- that the West is like pathologically fixated on breaking up Russia. And obviously you saw kind of, if like, it's like a psychic upsurge of this around the start of the war where like kind of, there was like, a, I mean, it's something you've seen like kind of expressed in online culture for, for decades of people love to post maps of a broken up Russia and especially maps of a broken up China. There seems to be like a, a real, real focus on it. Um, but
1: obviously Although, how Russia many maps be, are there of a broken up United States?
0: That's the other one, but that's kind of, that's like Freudian, you know, like that's <laughs> what Americans doing to themselves, you know, and like getting, but it's also like, that's kind of a way to express things about other Americans, right? Well,
1: uh, what's interesting to me, speaking of, um, there is that r- Russians also produce maps uh, breaking up countries. Um, I think most famously, um, Medvedev um, pushed, uh, published a map of um, a partitioned Ukraine. Right. Which is um, very weird, actually, um, since, one, it gives Poland uh, most of the West. Um, the... Which... Right, there, there was no particular affinity for Medvedev between um, uh, and, and Poland. Romania gets a big chunk for no reason, apparently, except maybe to serve as a buffer between the Polish-Ukrainian territories and the Russian-Ukrainian territories, while Ukraine itself ends up being kind of uh, a New Jersey-sized statelet around Kiev.
0: Which is weird, because if there's anywhere which is Ukraine, it's it's Liv, not Kiev, right?
1: Well... Um the Kiev is much more of a Russian city than Lviv, for instance, right? Linguistically and culturally. Um, Lviv is a bit of a touchy subject because it's only been a Ukrainian city since um nineteen forty five. And but when, that did a, <laughs> <Sorry>? <laughs> when did they make up Ukraine? Sorry? When did they make up Ukraine? Oh, <laughs> Lenin made up Ukraine, didn't you hear yeah, Putin? Yeah. Right, um, but um,
0: the the actual Russian national story is the Austro-Hungarians deliberately made up Ukraine, which like has like they tried, but you know.
1: Well, uh, also all of these narratives, um, really they and, and there's um, there's leftist variants of them. Um, they all consist of here's something that happened who are the political masterminds right and because
0: the the thing that was criticized by Nietzsche and Foucault right that by doing archaeology you reveal something as if when you dig dig down and you get to the very start there's something perfect and amazing that you revealed which dominates all present conditions you can just find the origin which of course is like well no it's not like (laughs) There's nothing that's more perfect about the origin than the the end, right? And so the fact that kind of these people thought themselves were Russians and then thought themselves were Ukrainians it's like so what?
1: I mean also the um there are forces outside of the control of political leadership, right? The even if they aren't necessarily in cohe if they aren't necessarily coherent or um, or have uh, a narrative of their own that they're forwarding, um, popular revolts, um, revolutions, um, the everyday resistance of people insisting on doing things locally their own way, that adds up, and a national renaissance. Doesn't need to be puppet-mastered um, in every instance. The linguistic uh, distinction between Ukrainian and Russian is long-standing, and for much of the 19th century, right, it was Russia's state-building project, nation-building project to standardize the Russian language, impose it on um, all of the territories, use it as the, the exclusive language of officialdom and education. It was that effort that triggered a response um, from people who uh, maybe didn't want to learn Russian. Um, maybe they thought that what they were speaking was good enough. <laughs> and the... Um, now, a lot of those narratives have come back. Um, th- there's a high level of popular hostility towards Russia in uh, Ukraine. Um, can't really blame them, right? Like-
0: uh, and Also, but before 2014, Russia was wildly popular with about 90% approval range, so like 5% disapproval. And up until this war, um, like in in February, it, There was still a positive opinion by most Ukrainians in, in Russia. You know what I fucking mean?
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. The it's, um, it is not all of that is, um, was inevitable either. Um, I think that, um, we can point to Zelensky personally making a difference. Um, in presenting a model of an appealing Ukrainian personal bravery, valor, um, courage. I'm just using synonyms for bravery now, but like um, the courageous boys. Exactly. And, and you know, he's an elected leader. Right. To a certain extent, Ukrainians can claim credit for Zelensky. Um, and unlike, right, like un- unlike Putin, who has been around long enough and after enough dodgy elections so that um, he really is um, distinct from the Russians who once upon a time elected him. But uh, Zelensky. As a peacetime president had dismal approval ratings. To a certain extent, good administration is not really a Slavic virtue. <laughs> um, it's something that people appreciate and that they aspire to, but it's not the most uh, immediate, um, immediate, immediately admirable, right? immediately appealing quality. In fact, there's something kind of German about it.
0: Well, often kind of administrating well when the state is set up in a way which isn't very nice is often worse than administrating badly, right? Because you you get all the parts working and people are like, wow, all the parts fucking suck.
1: Yes, uh, exactly. In a lot of ways, um, East Germany uh, was the quintessential effort at trying to combine sound administration with Soviet style, political and economic um, policy, and you end up with a prison state. Um, The similarly North Korea, right? um, It's one may quibble with um, how it's governed, say what you will about Juche, but the state apparatus In Korea is effective. It does what it sets out to do, which makes it all the clearer how monstrous a regime and system that it actually is.
0: Um it does also reveal that kind of having a monstrous state isn't the worst thing that could happen to you. Because you still far rather live in North Korea than you would in, in Niger.
1: That is um that's debatable, right? Because
0: okay, well, we, we can debate that in the parrot room, which we'll be yeah, going to.
1: Yeah, the um, I would contend that at least you can get out of Niger,
0: that's true, though it often involves drowning.
1: Oh, or or you know, being sold on an auction block in um, the the self-declared emirate in former libya
0: yeah or falling off like a, a, a fucking electrical posts in those spanish enclaves.
1: yeah uh um Quetta is is one of them uh
0: i, I mean I, I know how it's spelled but i didn't know how it was spelled, uh, said until you just said it i would have said like Quetta or something
1: yeah oh oh it's weird um i thought it was c-u-e-t-a it's c-e-u-t-a so
0: yeah i mean I'm, I'm dyslexic so
1: <laughs> kuta anyway it doesn't matter but like yeah the uh um... yeah,
0: you have anything any last remarks you want to get in for the plebs before we get rid of them and go on to patreon
1: um the it wasn't a russian missile um...
0: No, maybe it was a Soviet missile. I think they, actually those missiles were produced in Ukraine throughout the
1: whole Soviet period. Uh, excellent point, right? And that's another element here, right? Um, the Russia has, consist- has uh, been losing more and more a- as territories and regions um, broke off and uh, joined the West. You had this whole reorientation of trade that um, is another uh, way in which the post-Soviet Russian economy has, um, has really um, shrunk and diminished. Um, it's weird to think, but Poland and Hungary were drivers of innovation in the Eastern Bloc Uh, or at least significant contributors. Uh, The Soviet Union was, of course, the the biggest show in town. But the Eastern Bloc itself was not nothing. Um, And Russia has lost all of that. It could previously just demand um, that its satellites play whatever role in the economy um, it deemed most advantageous for itself. But uh, now... it either needs to adjust to rules of the game that are imposed by the West and international um, institutions dominated by the West, uh, or it can try to change the game. But if this is what changing the game looks like, you know, maybe maybe that's not such a great idea. The game's got hands. Sorry? The game's got hands. The game's got hands, right? Um, not everybody has the same hands. Yeah, they're tough. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. So let's go to the parrot room and um, see where that takes us. But uh, hopefully not Kersan.
0: <laughs> I was thinking, like, is Kersan even like a nice place? Is it like a well-respected city? I don't think so.
1: Yeah, it. I mean, the name itself, uh, I'd be curious to know its etymology. It sounds Turkic to me. Uh,
0: the whole thing about Kherson region is that there's like Kherson, which is like 95% of the population, and there's fucking nothing. Yeah. Which is why it was so much more embarrassing for Russia. But let's go. All right. Bye, everyone.